are in the house of the richest man in Vienna. And tonight he has commissioned a whole evening of sumptuous musical entertainment. Welcome to the Glyndebourne Podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds, and I'll be exploring the themes and images in Richard Strauss's Ariadne auf Naxos, which is being performed as part of the 2013 Glyndebourne Festival. Ariadne is an opera about opera, or more precisely, an opera about theatre. It brings together the form of a heroic opera seria and the Commedia dell'arte. Chaos will ensue, but it's a very enjoyable chaos. The writer and broadcaster, David Neese. Ariadne actually is my desert island opera. We actually took a recording of it to Naxos um, where we were staying in an apartment and, and played it over and over again. I mean, I just love it to bits. It is the most purely what Brecht disparagingly described as culinary opera. I mean, it is pure delight. In January 1911, Richard Strauss and his librettist, the poet Hugo von Hofmannsthal, had had a huge success with Der Rosenkavalier, which is probably still Strauss's best-known opera. By this time, Strauss and Hofmannsthal had been working together for some years, and for the most part, they had enjoyed a good working relationship. Just four weeks after the premiere of Der Rosenkavalier, we know that Hofmannsthal started to dream up the idea of what was to become Ariadne auf Naxos. It was originally conceived as a light entertainment to accompany Hofmannsthal's version of Molière's play Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme. But while Hofmannsthal was enthusiastic about the new opera, Strauss was rather cool, and then Hofmannsthal suggested making Ariadne into a thank-offering for the eminent theatre director Max Reinhardt, whose creative input had been so vital to the Dresden premiere of Der Rosenkavalier. The opera we know as Ariadne of Naxos today, which is the one nearly always performed, is the second of three versions. It is the only purely operatic version in which Ariadne is preceded by a prologue, a backstage prologue, that is sung throughout. The project of Ariadne was slightly fraught in that after Hoffmann's Talon Strauss had written the first version, 1912, this idea of then reworking it as an opera with an operatic prologue was working simultaneously with their collaboration on a completely different piece, this massive and artificial, as Strauss put it, fairy tale, Die Frau on a Schatten, The Woman Without a Shadow. And that, I think, had come to seem rather wearisome to Strauss by 1916, in the middle of the First World War, and he said he felt called upon to become the Offenbach of the 20th 20th century. So comedy, comedy and comedy was what he wanted, and the prologue of Ariadne supplied that. And yes, that opening backstage prologue does have plenty of comedy. When the composer and the music master realise that the Commedia team are also commissioned, the music master is horrified at the desecration of his pupil's high art, and he protests to the major domo, who only ever speaks and never sings. In der italienischen Buffo-Manier. Das kann nicht geschehen. Kann nicht? Wieso? 
darf nicht. Given that Ariadne was designed as a tribute to Max Reinhardt, and given too that Strauss himself was a consummate man of the theatre, this argument over high and low art was a very personal theme for the composer. He loved music and honoured his calling, but he knew the theatre, and he knew that to succeed you had to please your audience. David Neese. I love what I think it's Strauss says in one of the letters that there is no German artist who does not become more heavy-handed over what he's begun with than he ought to be, and that seems to rather have been the case with Hoffmann's style. This is taken as an indication that Strauss was perhaps a little banal and obvious, and that Hoffmann's style was the true artist. But I think that's an unfair representation. I think Strauss was simply wanting what would be practical on the stage. He fully understood what Hoffmann's style wanted, but he also knew what the audience wanted. There were two very different people, Strauss and Hoffmann's style. Strauss was a practical man of the theatre, composer and very great conductor, and Hoffmann's style was an aesthete. He was known as a playwright and poet, the music critic Michael Kennedy, who's written several books on Strauss. There are people who think that Strauss would have had more success if, if he worked with someone other than Hoffenstahl. But I think the two clashing together actually brought out the best in each other, even, even though it was hard work during the way. And uh, Hoffenstahl made a very good remark. He said, you know, to Strauss, when two men like us get together on a trifle like this, it has to be a very serious trifle. One of the many things that Strauss and Hoffmannsthal argued over during the creation of Ariadne was the character of the composer. Strauss decided early on to cast a soprano or a mezzo-soprano in a cross-dressing role. But Hoffmannsthal was appalled. Your opportunism in theatrical matters has in this case thoroughly led you up the garden path. To prettify this particular character, which is to have the aura of spirituality and greatness about it, strikes me as, forgive my plain speaking, odious. Oh Lord, if only I were able to bring home to you completely the essence, the spiritual meaning of these characters. But Strauss had his way. And the elevated qualities of the composer's role, as well as his youthfulness and idealism, are well suited to the higher voice. And it is to the composer that Strauss gives one of the most serious of the arias, Music is a Holy Art, in this trifle of an opera. David Neese. For me, the highlight is the scene in the prologue. First of all, the growing attraction of the composer, this wonderful trousers part, the climax of this very beautiful love duet. And then, above all, the way that the composer is so boyishly excited that he sings this wonderful ode to music. Uh, music is a, a holy art. The Musik ist ein heiliger Kunst. And Strauss really pulls out the stops there. It's the prize song, as Hoffman Starr called it. And gosh, that music absolutely glows. But even even there, there's a bit of irony, because whilst the composer is thinking that he's existing on the highest planes of music, the theme of Zerbinetta is sort of tinkling away underneath. So it's a delicious moment of romantic swooning and sort of slightly ironic neoclassical commentary. He's making fun, really, I suppose, of all composers, including himself, that don't like their work to be cut. They feel that all the greatness is chopped away. And yet he's also saying to them, as the music master says, you've got to get it over to the public, you've got it, do what they want, do what they tell you. So he was showing the 
impulsive side of being a composer and of thinking every note's sacred and the practical side of saying you're entertaining the public and you've got to get on with it and how it fits in with everything else. So I think it was sort of wonderfully looking at both sides of his own job. is Strauss's hymn to the power of music. But when Hofmannsthal first had the idea for Ariadne, it was the Commedia dell'arte element that attracted him. Theatre director Didi Hopkins of Commedia Works. Commedia dell'arte, simply translated, means comedy of the artist, of the actor. Commedia dell'arte was an art form that came out of Venice in the 16th century in Italy, and it came out of the Renaissance, and it has had a huge impact on all sorts of art forms ever since, whether it's opera, whether it's writing, whether it's text and performance, or whether it's in the theatre, and even you can see it in film at the beginning of the 20th century with Charlie Chaplin and people. You know, the tradition has survived. The first Commedia troops were actually guilds of actors like unions and it was the first place that women were allowed to be on stage and everybody was paid. You would have got people from literary academies who were playwrights and poets and people of the court and they would have been joined by street jugglers and buskers and clowns. There were perhaps 13 or 15 people maximum in a show and they represented everybody in society. In Strauss's Ariadne auf Naxos, the Commedia dell'arte troupe consists of four men, Harlequin, Scaramouche, Truffaldino and Brigella, and one woman, Zerbinetta. In this opera, they do have some individual personality, but they're based to some extent on the tradition of the stock Commedia characters. Didi Hopkins. Some of the stock characters in Commedia are the servants. For example, Arlecchino. He is a very simple servant. It doesn't mean he's stupid because he actually has very good ideas. But he's very childlike or, or childish and he's a joker, he's an acrobat and he's very sort of loose-limbed. So he'll follow anything that's got a skirt on. Uh, his main other drive is he's always hungry or he's trying to figure out how to make money. By comparison, the female equivalent of Arlecchino is strong, feisty, she knows what's going on in the world, she rules the roost at whatever level she lives at, and she sees the world as it really is. She makes things happen. She can be a great designer of the plot. Which is pretty much what happens in Strauss. The title role is Ariadne, but gradually, gradually, Zerbinetta takes over. Again... 
this was to cause a bit of a rift between the composer and his librettist Hoffmannsthal. Michael Kennedy. He liked Strauss, I think. I think they liked each other, really. But uh, they nearly came to a split over Ariadne because of Strauss's desire to have this Zerbinetta character more or less the chief thing. And uh, Hoffmannsthal wrote him a long and pompous letter about uh, why the point about it was the fidelity between Ariadne and Bacchus. And uh, there was, could only be one man for her, living or dead, and this was important. Uh, but Zerbinetta was a flighty creature, and, uh, which, of course, appealed to Strauss for his music far more. If the composer and his music master are already upset simply by the fact that his grand opera is being performed on the same evening as the Commedia dell'arte turn, then the situation is about to get a great deal worse. The major domo appears backstage to announce that there is no time to present the opera and the Commedia dell'arte consecutively, and so it has been decreed that the two pieces will be performed gleichzeitig, simultaneously. Ist dieser reiche Herr besessen? Will man sich über uns lustig machen? Sind die Leute wahnsinnig? Ich muss augenblicklich den Grafen sprechen. So what was a mere juxtaposition between the high art and the low has become an out-and-out competition. It may be a disaster for the composer in the story, but this colliding of the two makes an important artistic and philosophical point. David Neese and then Michael Kennedy. I think Hoffmannsthal originally had in mind the 18th and even 17th century split between what developed as opera seria, that's to say grand opera with heroic or mythological characters, posturing and uh, generally delivering lofty sentiments, and what he perhaps wouldn't have described as a lower form of entertainment, but a more frivolous, a more frothy type of comedy, the the opera buffa, the comic opera, which originally was inserted as a kind of intermezzo between the serious acts of the, the opera seria. And of course, the idea in this treatment is that the two aren't played separately, but simultaneously, gleichzeitig, as the major domo in the prologue tells us, which obviously gives opportunity for all sorts of chaos, but also for interesting commentary between real life and artificial life, the difference between the lofty sentiments of gods and heroes and the sentiments of ordinary human beings. It's a very ambitious idea, successfully executed. It is a very clever piece, this high art, low art clash, which isn't a clash, because Strauss moulds it so well. The, The combination of the behind-the-scenes bustle of humour at the beginning, set to this conversational recitative of which he was such a master, and then the more formal drama of the second part, is this really stroke of genius, the way he's brought it off. The music world of Ariadne is richly coloured, portraying both the intense experience of opera and the teasing, more playful shades of the Commedia dell'arte. And all this is done with a very restricted orchestra. David Neese. Strauss is actually using a chamber orchestra of some 34 players, but even within that he's trying to make a distinction between the world of the Commedia dell'arte troupe, which tends to be very light, quite piano-dominated, 
has a lot of waltzes and uh, gavots and light music, basically, and the world of the mythological characters where he wants to open up the orchestra to be more of a, a symphony orchestra. You get the feeling that it's almost straining at the leash to be the, the hundred-piece orchestra that Strauss has used in, in previous operas. So it's a much grander and, and lusher sound for the heroic figures. In some ways, the opposition comes down to the contrast between the two female leads. And as the second part of the opera opens, it is Ariadne who holds the stage. two sopranos who represent the different facets of experience, the mythological character Ariadne and the human character Zerbinetta, both have very different types of music. The prima donna, which is of course exactly what Ariadne is, the heroic soprano, well she's more of a lyric soprano verging on the heroic or the dramatic. She has two very grand and beautiful arias and of course a great final duet with Bacchus. The lighter soprano, the coloratura of the soprano, the soprano who sings these fantastic flashing ornaments and runs, Zerbinetta, gets the ultimate tour de force of a coloratura aria, which Hoffmannsthal asked Strauss to consult Bellini and Donizetti for, Lucia di Lammermoor, for example. Um, Though, of course, Lucia isn't a light character, Zerbinetta is. The interesting thing is that Zerbinetta's lyrics are perhaps more down-to-earth, and therefore she's not only showing off, she's also telling us what it feels like to be human, whereas Ariadne, in her arias, is telling us what it feels like to be one heroic type of character to be in one heroic state. So you get an extreme contrast between these these two types of arias. Along with Harlequino and the rest, Zerbinetta tries to cheer Ariadne. They dance, they sing, they turn cartwheels and perform acrobatics, all very much in the commedia tradition. Didi Hopkins. Commedia is actually a very, very exaggerated art form because it was originally performed in piazzas. So from the very off... Physically, it had to draw the attention of an audience from far, far away because that's how people earned their money. They drew the audience to them, the audience stayed, and at the end, they paid. They were very well known for Lazzi, which is comic business, and if you translate Lazzi, you get the word laces, and it was literally the comic business that laced together the main story. Like if you were performing Romeo and Juliet you'd put in a lot of Lazzi, but you wouldn't lose the story. But Zerbinetta has one long, brilliant section to herself. Gracious princess, she begins. What woman has not known the pains of love? But for myself that would never stop me loving. Und uns, und nicht in Liede. 
Naxos is about two types of being. One is uh, constant unto death, the other is fickle and flighty. And I think Hugo von Hofmannsthal, the librettist, had in mind from the start this disjunction between what he described as the heart that's frozen and the heart that beats. You know, one is stuck in time, the other is constantly mobile. And he was interested in the interaction of those types of characters. In Ariadne of Naxos, obviously, it's the mythological uh, maiden Ariadne deserted on uh, the island of Naxos by Theseus. And on the other hand, we have Zerbinetta, the leader of the Commedia dell'arte troop, who is light and frivolous. Um, I think actually it's much more fashionable these days to play her as a rather more complex human being. And she rather poo-poos the idea of Ariadne's constancy and can't understand it. She moves from one man to another. David Neese. Zerbinetta tells Ariadne that every time a new man comes into her life, she surrenders. At the climax of the opera, Bacchus appears and Ariadne does surrender. swells, Bacchus and Ariadne are oblivious, wrapped up in each other. Only Zerbinetta sees, and she says, I told you so, when the new lover approaches, we surrender without a word. 